If I were going to give tonight's study of 2 Chronicles 6 and 7, we're going to try and just do two chapters tonight, pull back a bit. Uh, I think I would have to call it Asked and Answered. Asked and Answered. For in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon asks. He prays a great prayer of dedication at Dedication Day for the new temple, which has just been completed as the chapter opens up. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the Lord answers. He responds to Solomon's prayer. So asked and answered. Tonight we get to listen in on both. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 1. Let's dive right in. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said He would dwell in the thick cloud. I have built you a lofty house and a place for your dwelling forever. Then the king faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel was standing. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it with his hands, saying, Since the day that I brought my people from the land of Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. Nor did I choose any man for a leader over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David, Solomon goes on, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you did not build the house. But your son who will be born to you, he shall build the house for my name. Now, The Lord has fulfilled His word which He spoke. For I have risen in the place of my father David to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set the ark in which was the covenant of the Lord which He made with the sons of Israel. A few things to note right off the bat as we enter into this chapter. Solomon begins here with some opening remarks. Now, following this, beginning in verse 12 and through the rest of the chapter, Solomon is going to be praying. But before he does, he has some opening remarks, some things he says to the people of Israel. And here are the things that I'd like you to jot down if you're a note taker. First off, Solomon encourages the people. He encourages the people of the Lord. More literally, he blesses them. He blesses them. In fact, by the time it's all said and done, the people were told, go home happy and rejoicing. Because of the goodness of God, they go home and they just say, wow, what an event that was. What a great day, literally. What a great week. How God has been so good to us. And so Solomon begins this whole thing by blessing the people, encouraging the people. Our God, as you may know, maybe you don't know, is into blessing. He loves to bless His people. He wants to bless. He takes great pleasure in seeing His people blessed. This is at the core of the heart of God. It's not judgment and harshness. It's blessing. He wants His children to be blessed. In fact, just prior to the people's rebellion in the wilderness, the Lord steps up and prescribes a specific blessing for His people. The Lord spoke to Moses, Numbers chapter 6, verse 23, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke My name on the sons of Israel and I will bless them. 
This is before the rebellion. What? Did God not see the rebellion coming? No, He knew it was coming. And yet it was still His intention, His purpose, and His heart to see the people blessed. So on this dedication day, as the ceremonies get underway, we're told Solomon does just that. Verse 3, we're told he blesses the people. Now my question is, how does he do that? I mean, did someone in the crowd sneeze and he calls out, God bless you, you know? Does he begin to repeat the ironic uh, blessing from Numbers chapter 6? What is it that Solomon does? All we're told really is that he blessed the assembly of Israel. And the very next verse, verse 4, tells us, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Wait a minute. I thought he was blessing Israel. But verse 4 says he's blessing the Lord. He opens his mouth and blesses the Lord. And I believe this is how he blesses Israel. Because the real blessing lies in the blessing of the name of the Lord. Let me explain this. In these first 11 verses, Solomon begins by talking to the people about the Lord, which always brings blessing to people, doesn't it? When you sit and listen to to words given about the Lord, when we study Jesus, when we talk about Him, even as we're doing here tonight, don't you feel blessed? And that, I believe, is how Solomon began by blessing the people. They were blessed because Solomon blessed the Lord. I'm going to read a couple of verses, and I'd like to do something else, a little interaction tonight. I'd like you to just repeat after me. Okay? Psalm 103, verse 1. Don't repeat that. Just repeat these words. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget none of His benefits. Now, don't you feel better? (laughs) It's amazing how blessing the Lord blesses the heart. I can say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and though my praise is directed heavenward, something happens internally. Something changes in me. And the blessing that is for the Lord is an encouragement to me. When we say, bless the Lord, O my soul, we're speaking to ourselves about the Lord. Psalm 135, 19. We're told, O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who revere the Lord, bless the Lord. And in so doing, we are blessed. You know, I I was uh, raised on the hymns, on singing uh, old hymns, a cappella. That was kind of how I grew up and how I, a lot of my early theology and, and some of that thought theology I had to go back and, and correct. Thankfully the word, word did that because some of the hymns, woohoo, you know, they, they can get out there a little bit. But a lot of them are so rich in true biblical, sound biblical doctrine. And I remember singing those, but the thing that frustrated me as a kid was how often the old hymns talked about the Lord but didn't speak to Him. In fact, there was a miniature revolution of sorts in, in the mid-70s where songs, praise choruses began to be written. And they were lacking in depth, but they were awesome in the fact that they directed people to the Lord. That the praise was, praise you, Jesus. And, and suddenly now in our worship we were praising God. We were looking to Him and talking to Him as opposed to just talking about Him. And as a kid growing up on the hymns, there were, there were many times where I thought, you know, if you want to bless the Lord, tell Him, don't tell me. I mean, come on. These songs are all about Him, but none of them are to Him. Stop talking about blessing God and just do it. 
This is my little attitude problem. Well, here's the thing. This was an aha moment for me. It is a blessing to the people when you bless the Lord. And it's a blessing to the Lord when you bless Him to the people. Well, see, that's another caveat here. Is as we bless the Lord to each other, as we talk about His goodness and mercy and everlasting love and, and kindness to us, it blesses Him. I mean, who among us doesn't like to hear roundabout something nice that's been said to us? Hey, it's one thing if you come up to me and say, Hey, Rick, blah, 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 something great. And I walk away feeling good about that, and I appreciate the compliment. But, but inside somewhere, you've got to ask the question, What do they want? You know, what's really going on here? <laughs> Sorry, it's the cynic in me. But if you hear that someone's been talking about you behind your back and spewing all kinds of really nice things, doesn't that make you feel great? Because you recognize they're not doing it for anything other than they really mean it. I love hearing roundabout comments. So, so if you have a compliment for me tonight, I, I ask you to go to another brother or sister, tell them, and have them come tell me, and we'll be good. I don't know about you, but in the Lord's case, I believe, and the Scripture is clear on this, that it blesses Him when we talk about Him. When we bless Him to other people, it blesses Him. In fact, there's a dual effect. It, it honors Him and it blesses them. So if you want to bless somebody, a great way to go about it is bless the Lord to them. Tell them about the Lord. If you want to encourage someone's life, let them know about Jesus. So Solomon encourages the people by blessing the Lord to the people. That's how this whole thing gets started. Something else that goes on here in the midst of the opening remarks. Number two, Solomon emphasizes, not only does he encourage the people, but he emphasizes the city of the Lord, Jerusalem. For couched in these first 11 verses is a verse of, uh, that's very critical, I believe, in the Scriptures. Verse 6, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. It's one of the, the proving verses that God has literally called out a city on planet Earth and said, that is my zip code, that is my hometown, that's my city. That's where my name will be. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this because we've talked a lot about it. If you've sat any manner of time in the bridge and you haven't heard that Jerusalem is God's city, well, you just heard it, so we don't need to repeat that again. But there's a word we hear 14 times before Solomon finishes praying. It will be spoken another 14 times throughout the book of Second Chronicles for a total of 28 times. It's a significant word. It's a significant word to most Orthodox Jews even today and the ultra-Orthodox. It is a, a word that they ascribe to the Lord And it's the word Hashem in Hebrew. Hashem, which means the name. So not only does Solomon encourage the people and emphasize the city, but number three, Solomon exalts the name of the Lord. You might want to note this throughout the chapter. You're going to hear nine times Solomon refers to the temple as the house which was built for the name. Nine times he says that. He's, he's emphasizing something important. He's exalting the name. The house that was built for the name. The house that was built for the name. He says it in verses 5, 7, 8, 9, 10, 20, 33, 34, and 38. And you can just go through the chapter and find all those. Nine different times he refers to the house built for the name. Hashem. One time in verse 6, as we just talked about, Solomon calls Jerusalem the city where the Lord chose to put His name. His name, again. So now we're up to ten times. Two more times. In verses 24 and 26, Solomon emphasizes the need of the people to confess His name. 
By the way, a little side note on confession. Confession isn't just about blah, pouring out all the sin in your life. It's about speaking the name of Jesus. Confession becomes powerful gain when not only do we confess our wrongs, but we confess our belief in Jesus Christ. That we speak His name out. So two times Solomon says, confess His name, and then two more times, twice more, in verses 32 and 33, he says something concerning the foreigner. The nokri in Hebrew, which means stranger or alien, the outsider. He prays for the sake of the name, for the sake of God's name, that all those who will hear His name will come to faith in Him and come to know His name. He's going to say that twice. We'll look at that in a few moments here. So, summing up, in exalting the name of the Lord, the house was built for His name, the city was a place for His name, the confession must be of His name, and the evangelization of foreigners is for the sake of His name. His name, His name, His name. Now, 1 Chronicles 13, verse 6, a few books back, David and all Israel went up to get the ark at Kiriath Jerim. And as they were there, it tells us that they went to bring up the ark of God, the, uh, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, where His name is called. Placing of His name right there. God said, my name will be there between the cherubim. Now, we all know that God is not limited to the little roughly four foot spot between the two golden angels there on top of the ark. We all know that he's not stuck there, that when he said, I will meet with you there, that that's the, he suddenly limited himself to that little square spot on planet Earth on the Ark of the Covenant. But his name was there. Hashem is an incredibly important word, the name, to Jewish people today. Why is that? Because to a Hebrew mind, the name speaks of the nature. We've talked about this, I believe, a little bit before, but it, it indicates the attributes of a person. It's not just like, you know, Rick. I think I've shared that, that my name, Richard, that, that my full name literally means harsh king. Now, my children might agree with that. I don't. I don't think it's a fair name. And, and I'm not named because as a child they looked at me and said, someday he's going to be a harsh ruler. He's just going to be, you know, a heavy-handed guy. I, you know, they didn't know that about me, but in Hebrew thinking... There is something deeply spiritual about the name that does express the attributes. Prophetically, as, as old Jacob named his twelve boys, and each of the names of the twelve tribes of Israel were spoken, those names had deep meaning to them and in them. We talked about the name Judah, meaning praise, and so on and so forth. And I'm not going to get all into that. But the attributes, even the presence of the bearer of the name is indicated when the name is spoken. Well, which name are we talking about here? I mean, 14 times he says, you know, the city for the name, the house for the name, confess his name, come to know his name. So he says it's over to What name are we saying here? Yahweh? The I Am? Which is what Yahweh literally means? Is it Adonai? That's another name for God. Or how about Elohim? Or El Elyon? El Roy? El Shaddai? El Olam? These are all names given for God in the Scripture. Very descriptive, each one of them. Very specific. The name is simply that. It's the name. It's not defined as Yahweh. The temple was not called the house built for Yahweh. It was called the house built for the name. Now why, why is that? Why wasn't a specific name for God attached to the temple and spoken Gang, Hashem embodies all of the names of God and far more. 
By calling God Hashem, what we're recognizing is the true internal nature of God cannot be limited to a single description. One name is simply not enough for God. A dozen names doesn't cover Him. A billion names. A trillion names. It's not enough to truly define the eternal quality of our God. He is beyond all of that. He's greater than that. So the Jewish mind just says, Hashem, the name. Because He's greater than any name we could literally give Him. Now when I think about that, it kind of gets my mind blowing a little bit. You know, the, the vastness of God, the hugeness, the eternal nature. I mean, He's just beyond description. How can I possibly be expected to draw near to Him? To be intimate with Him? To get personal with a God who is so great? Well, He made it easy for us, didn't He? He spoke a name. The name Jesus. A very simple name. In fact, where I might have chosen some big grandiose name with, you know, 27 syllables and, you know, God just says, you shall call him Jesus. Let's just go with Jesus. Well, Lord, there are a lot of guys named Jesus. You know, or Jesus. I mean, in in Jesus' day, Joshua. Joshua. It's a very common name. God says, no, no, that's the one. Well, why? Well, it's simple in its meaning. God saves. And it's simple in that by looking at Jesus, we see, we get, we receive an explanation of God. John 1.18, Jesus has explained Him. Simply. In the flesh. In a way that we can understand. While we're sitting here trying to rattle through our minds about all the different names of God and, and, and even the Hebrew and the coming of Jesus, the Jewish person sitting there going, Hashem is too big for me. And along comes Jesus, the simple carpenter, Yeshua. And suddenly God was understandable in a way never before possible. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1.11 to this end. We pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. And you in Him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, it is absolutely astounding that a God who cannot be limited to any name or any number of names chose the name Yeshua to present Himself simply to the world. Is the name of Christ glorified in you? Is the name of Christ glorified by you? How, let me ask you this. How often do you even speak the name of Jesus aloud? Let me encourage you. When you pray, and we've been talking a little bit last Sunday, and, and let's pray tonight. We've been talking about prayer, and, and I have such a desire in my heart to see us break out and be freed up to really be, be a people of prayer. But when you do it, a lot of people have come to this, frankly, this religious place of praying silently. It's personal, and I'm just going to do it right here to myself. Listen, you are missing some of the power if you're not speaking the name. Let me encourage you, when you pray, to speak the name of Jesus out loud. You know, when the name of Jesus is spoken, the demons flee. That scares them to death. There is authority there. There is power in the name of Jesus Christ. Speak it. Speak His name. And don't hold back. Remember, there's no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. But even as Jesus came to humanity, making the name more personal, don't forget 
Here's the flip side of the flip side, but there's more to Jesus than just one name. In fact, Revelation 19.12 tells us He has a name written on Him which no one knows except Himself. What does that mean? It means the name's too big. It means Jesus shares that eternal, powerful nature of God. And yet simply, personally, He comes to you and says, Yeah, but I'm also Jesus. I'm Jesus. Totally off the subject here, but I, I noticed something. Revelation 19. Do you realize how often, when we're just studying through, how often there's a quote from Revelation 19 up there? But that is not by design. That's not because that's my favorite chapter in the Bible or anything. I, it just struck me today. Revelation 19 is in almost every single study. There is a tremendous amount of biblical doctrine in that chapter all by itself. It's incredible what we learn about Jesus from Revelation 19. Great place to go and just meditate and study. Well, now Solomon finishes speaking to the people. Opening remarks. And now he begins into this dedicated prayer to the Lord. Notice his posture. And remember what I told you, remember when we began, how you felt, men, when your hands were raised. 2 Chronicles 6, verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, seven and a half by seven and a half feet, and three cubits high, about four and a half feet high. And he had set it in the midst of the court. And he stood on it, knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven. The posture of prayer. Solomon's posture, anyway, in in his prayer, are hands spread on his knees. And gang, what we see in Solomon is not a grandiose religiosity. What we see is an act of submission and humility before the people. Some might challenge that. Some might read of what Solomon does here and go, how bombastic and pious can one guy get? Oh, he's got his bronze stand up there in front of all the people. Now he's on his knees, his hands are up. You know. Well, that's the effect of several years of televangelism on many of us. But I'll tell you something about the posture of prayer. When you kneel in prayer with other people present, it does not puff you up. It's a little embarrassing. When you raise up your hands in prayer in the assembly of believers, it is rarely a, hey, look at me. I know it can be, and if it is, don't do it. But it's rarely a, hey, look at me. It is kind of humbling. A little embarrassing. Gentlemen, how did you feel? How did you really feel when Les said, I want you to raise your hands? I know how I felt. I'm a pastor. I've done this all my life. I was still sitting there strumming my guitar when he said, stand up. Well, I'm not standing up. I'm, I'm providing background music here. Thank you very much, Les. Well, men, raise your hands. Oh, all right. It took me a minute. Why? Because the posture of prayer it, it, it can be a humbling thing. That's what's going on here. Now, I'm just telling you this because when you go to pray, if... If my posture of prayer is right before I go to sleep at night and my head's already on my pillow, guess what? I'm not praying long. If my posture of prayer is while I'm walking somewhere, that's great. And you should be constantly praying and talking to the Lord. If it's while I'm driving, but I've got other things going on with my body. There is something about positioning yourself before the Lord. 
Whether it's at home in your prayer closet or in the assembled fellowship, there is something about positioning. Whether it's kneeling or lifting your hands or standing before the Lord, there's something that happens there that I believe can be heart-led. Daniel understood this, this humble approach to God. And what we see with Solomon here, when he kneels and spreads out his hands, this is the king of Israel. First of all, I would have made the platform a lot higher than four and a half feet. But, you know, just for the sake of argument, here he is. And the king of Israel could have just stood up there and proudly said, Oh, God! But he's on his knees, which is an embarrassing place to be in front of all the people. His hands are spread apart because Solomon is not talking to the people anymore. He is focused on the Lord. Daniel, as I said, understood this. Even in Babylon. Remember the prophet Daniel? He was taken as a 17-year-old boy into Babylonian captivity. There raised up in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. He would serve through numerous kings over nearly 70 years in Babylon. And at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is, is dead and gone. He's no longer a factor. But Darius... The Mede, the, the king of, of Medo-Persia that, that subverts Babylon, is now king. And, and Daniel's there, and he's kind of an advisor to the king, a wise man. Well, his jealous enemies, they figure out a way to nail Daniel. They produce an edict, and they get the king to sign it behind Daniel's back that says, you won't pray to anybody but the king. But, you know, that's good for Darius to hear. Kind of puff up a little, little pride. Yeah, they should pray to me. I am king after all. Daniel, we're told, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, when he knew that the document was signed, he entered into his house. His roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing so previously. I've always wondered, why would you do that, Daniel? I mean, you know what the edict is. I'm not saying don't pray, Daniel, but close the window. (laughs) Or go pray in the other room. God still hears you. What is he doing here? On his knees before the open window, just as he had been doing. Daniel's posture was neither rebellious, nor was it religious. It was humble, and it was directed to the one king Daniel truly served, and that is the Lord. And so Daniel decidedly continued to humble himself before the Lord. And it didn't matter who was watching, and it didn't matter what the outcome would be. What mattered was to whom Daniel was praying. And I believe we see this in Solomon. I can almost see Solomon forgetting that he is surrounded by the massive throngs of Israel. They're on that platform, on his knees, hands raised to the Lord. It was just Solomon and God. And he begins to pray. Verse 14. You know what, before we go on, one, one other thing on this. Let me just address this, because some might say, oh, so, you know, it's all about your physical posture, right? No, it's about your heart. But your heart often needs some direction. Mine does. And I found that getting on my knees redirects my heart to where it should be when I pray. And lifting up hands will redirect my heart. If it's not, if it brings pride, don't do it. Because prayer is never about personal pride. But it is the heart that matters the most to the Lord. Now, before making any requests of the Lord, Solomon begins to pray, but he worships. He directly begins to bless the Lord to the Lord himself. Verse 14. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant 
showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who has kept with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is to this day. Solomon praises God and he praises Him. You can draw out at least four things here that he praises God for. He praises Him for His uniqueness. There's no other God like you. Solomon praises God for His faithfulness, keeping covenant. He praises God for His grace. There's no other God like you, keeping covenant, showing loving kindness to your servants. That word loving kindness is a significant word in the Hebrew. It's chesed and it is the Hebrew equivalent of the word grace. The loving kindness, the grace, the merciful kindness of God. Solomon praises God for that. He praises God, and I like this, for His integrity. He's already said it once. He says it again. He says, you you have spoken with your mouth, the end of verse 15, and have fulfilled it with your hand. This is the second time he says this. What does that mean? You've spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand. Integrity. It means you do what you say. You spoke it, you do it. And we have seen time and time again throughout Scripture, God speaks it and He does it. And that's integrity. And there is complete integrity in the Word of God, the speaking of God, because if He says it, He follows through. He always does exactly as He says. And we should learn something about that. Regarding integrity, it's one thing to speak it with the mouth. I can do that very easily, trust me. I speak a lot of things with my mouth. Where, where it really meets the road is where what I speak with my mouth is performed by my hands. I fulfill what I said. I keep my word. Integrity is speaking and fulfilling. It's mouth and hands together. As Les likes to say, if you want to know where a person's heart truly is, watch where their feet go. Well, you can tell me all day long, you love Jesus, but where are your feet going through the rest of the week? You can say all day long, Lord, I want to serve you, but are you? See, with the Lord, when He speaks it, He does it. He follows through. He never fails. Numbers 23.19, and I love the fact, I'll just point this out, that this verse is spoken by Balaam, the prophet, the seer, who was not really friendly with God, not really a prophet of God. He was in it for the prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. But he begins to speak and the Spirit comes on him. And he has to speak what God says. And I love this. Balaam says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? He speaks with the mouth. He fulfills with the hands. Because that is his nature. Because that's who God is. Whatever he speaks, he fulfills, because he cannot, as Paul tells us, deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 Going on, verse 16. Solomon continues to pray. He says, Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. If only your sons take heed to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me, Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant David. There's a condition here. And Solomon acknowledges this. If the kings heed to their way and walk in his law, they would never lack a man sitting on the throne of Israel. Is there a king sitting on the throne in Israel today? Oh, there's Benjamin Netanyahu, but he's not a king. There's Shalom Perez, not a king. 
There is not a king sitting on the throne because the kings did not heed their way and did not walk in his law. Ultimately, it all gets so bad, God gives them over to Babylon. But what's amazing to me is even for their unfaithfulness, even though they don't keep the condition of walking in the way of the Lord and keeping His law, God still follows through with His part of the bargain. He still fulfills what He said He would fulfill. He still remains faithful. There still comes a king in the line of Judah. A king who will sit on that throne eternally. Our King Jesus Christ. Verse 18, But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you, that your eye may be open toward this house day and night, toward the place of which you have said that you would put your name There, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place from heaven. Hear and forgive. Solomon is praying that God would hear their prayers. It's like a preemptory prayer. Please hear our prayers as we pray from this place. Hear us as we pray to you, O Lord. But there's a foreshadowing interesting in Solomon's prayer that recognizes our sin nature. You notice the last thing in that phrase, verse 21, hear and forgive. Hear and forgive. This is not only preemptive praying, this is pre-intercessory prayer. It's intercessory prayer before intercessory prayer. Solomon is interceding with the Lord, asking that he hears their prayers, hoping that as they continue on as a people, they will be a people of prayer. He's asking the Lord to have a heart of forgiveness for the people even before forgiveness is required. Now understand, this is not the same thing as indulgences. The idea of Catholic doctrine of buying ahead of time a little less time in purgatory or spending a little bit of money and getting a pass on certain sins which is the simple version of what an indulgence is. And this is not Solomon praying, Lord forgive us for the sins we're about to commit at the party later this weekend. Now, I don't know if you've ever done that. Lord, cover me, because I'm about to go do some stuff that I know you really don't want me to do, but forgive me. I'll be back. You know, It's not what Solomon's doing. He's asking the Lord to do what the Lord has already promised to do. He's just saying, Oh Lord, hear the prayers of your people. Hear us when we pray, and forgive us when we come to you. Hear our repentance. Can I pause just for a moment? I, I want to pray this, and then we'll go on. Father, this Sunday we've set aside at the time of praying. And I ask you right now, Lord, would you prepare our hearts? And Father, would you be prepared to hear our prayers of repentance? In Jesus' name, Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30. Moses is speaking here and he's speaking for the Lord and says, When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers which He swore to them. Saying a repentant heart prepares for repentance. 
And this is what Solomon is doing. He's praying for repentance before repentance is even necessary. Let me read something else to you. Keep your finger there in First Chronicles and flip over to the right to the book of Psalms. Psalm 7. Psalm chapter 7. ran across this as I was studying and I found it really interesting about the Lord first is spoken of and then the, the unrepentant part. Beginning in verse 11, Psalm 7, it reads, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. What does that mean? It means on a daily basis God sees the injustice on earth and it frustrates Him and it angers Him. And it's only because of His divine grace and loving kindness and patience that He hasn't squashed this little sinful planet yet. Every day He has indignation. Verse 12, If a man does not repent, he, speaking of the Lord, will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared himself for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. That's speaking about the Lord. That is towards someone who's unrepentant. Now, before he travails with wickedness, speaking about the unrepentant person, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood, he has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. And this is the unrepentant heart that is not willing to come back to the Lord, not willing to turn and say, for whatever I've done, Lord, I am sorry, I come to you, I fall at your feet. No, this is the man who says, I don't really care. These are all those who we see throughout, especially the latter part of Revelation, who refuse to repent, even though they see everything going on, and they know it's from the Lord, they still refuse to repent. And it's not a pretty picture. But a truly repentant heart will prepare for repentance even when you're not sure what you need to repent of. You're still saying, Lord, prepare me that I might be ready to turn to you at a moment's notice. Now Solomon is going to stay in pre-intercessory mode in several areas here. If you want to jot these down, the first is in interpersonal dealings. In interpersonal dealings. Verse 22. Solomon says, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven, and act, and judge your servants, punishing the wicked by bringing his way on his own head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Solomon is praying about the interpersonal relationships between neighbors there in Israel. One has a problem with another. If there are issues going on, and they come and they pray about it, Lord... Respond with justice in the interpersonal relationships and dealings in Israel. I find this interesting. We could rephrase what Solomon is saying this way. May the temple be a bastion of truth between people. May those who are being deceitful be found out. May those who are being true of heart also be found out. May the truth come out in this place. As people argue and have bitter battles and neighbors are getting into scuffles over things and they come to you in the temple, may the truth come out very clearly and very obviously. I I know a parent who once told me that as her children were in high school that she prayed they would get caught. She said that to me. I said, what do you mean pray that they get caught? If they were ever doing anything they shouldn't be doing, I would just pray, Lord, I pray they get caught. And it worked. Because they did. Several times. 
And I thought, what a great par- prayer. For I know teenagers are going, huh? Don't pray that. You know, I'm praying I won't get caught. No, the parent who says, Lord, may the truth come out. And especially with your kids, I love that because you want the truth to come out as early in life as possible. So we can get the course corrected. Because if the course isn't corrected, as many of you know who have lived through it, it just gets worse. So she would pray for her kids to be outed by the truth, literally. Now, isn't that the way? Isn't that the way the church is supposed to be? Isn't this a place where the truth should out, where it should become obvious what's going on, good, bad, or ugly? We are called to be a people who speak the truth in love. And by the way. And this is somewhere, sometimes where it's missed in the church. When the truth does come out, how we handle that speaks volumes about do we really know Jesus? Because when the truth does come out, our position should be one of restoration and compassion and forgiveness and understanding. We want the truth out. We don't want to have to hide things from each other or from the Lord. Well, that's one of the greatest wonders of grace is I have nothing to hide before God. You can pin me to the wall and say, but Rick, I saw you do this night, and, and I can respond. You're right. I'm sorry. I am a sinner. And I can know the grace of God has forgiven me. But will you? Will we in the church? We've read this verse many, many times lately. The Lord keeps directing me back to it. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And this is what Solomon is praying. May people who are having problems come to this place, pray to you, and may the truth come out, making things right again. The second thing he begins to then pray is for international dispersions. International dispersions. Verse 24. If your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and they return to you and confess your name, and pray and make supplication before you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them back to the land which you have given them and to their fathers. International dispersions. We've seen time after time, this would be Israel's judgment for sinning against the, against the Lord. That the foreign nations would come in and would just decimate them. Then it happened. Northern Israel going into Assyrian captivity. Southern Judah, Judah going into Babylonian captivity. And continuing throughout the entire life and history of Israel, you've heard me say it, no other people group has been more scattered and yet remained a people. Lands have been destroyed. Nations have been subjugated. But, but not like Israel. And yet they are still a people, which is astounding that they have continued to exist as a people. Truly one of the greatest proofs of the truth of Scripture is the prophesied future of the people of Israel. You can read what God said would happen, and it, it's like a history before it happens. It is so literal and specific. But just as clearly prophesied is Israel's restoration and their return. Let me read this to you. Zechariah chapter 8. If you want to flip there, you can. Zechariah chapter 8. I love the book of Zechariah. I, I, I can't wait till we get there. You know, it's just a short book, 14 chapters, but man, it's amazing. Listen to this. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord. I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. 
And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Has that yet happened? Has that happened? We've never seen that happen. There's not a time in history you can point to where God came and dwelt there and, and it was called the city of truth. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? Declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. And I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Now listen, we already talked about the name, Hashem. We already talked about God's faithfulness. We already talked about the fact that He speaks in the mouth, by His mouth and fulfills with His hands. God spoke judgment for Israel with His mouth. He has fulfilled with His hands. Has He not? And now God speaks in Zechariah 8 with His mouth. Let me ask you, will He fulfill with His hands? Is He going to do it? He has been spot on, batting a thousand, 100% right every single time. Why would we think this would be any different? It won't. He's going to do it. Interpersonal dealings, Solomon prays for. International dispersions, Solomon prays for. And now, number three, environmental disasters, for lack of a better word. Global, geographic disasters here on Israel. Verse 26. He prays, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. And they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk. And send rain on your land which you have given to your people for an inheritance. Verse 28. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, Man, check some of your showers. There may be a problem there. If there is locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man, that is individually, or by all your people collectively, Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain, and spreading his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each according to all his ways whose heart you know for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you have given to our fathers Solomon he covers all the bases he makes sure everything could possibly be covered. He realizes God's discipline can be as large scale as drought and famine and pestilence and plague. And he also realizes God's discipline can be as small scale as personal illness. As someone who's just sick. In both ways, it's interesting to me. Have you noticed we've moved away from calling geographical upheavals like earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes? We don't call them acts of God as much anymore. They're acts of nature. As if nature could act on its own. And yet, that's, I, I just realized that today, that in the news, just the last few years here, very recently, I'm not hearing the word acts of God, that phrase being used. Acts of nature. Moving away from God further and further. 
We refer to them as natural disasters. I wonder if a hurricane or if a tsunami truly was discipline from the Lord if we would know it. If we could even recognize it as such. Mark chapter 4 verse 41, the apostles recognized, they said, Who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Luke 21.25 tells us there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Then when the tsunami hit just a few years back, there was a lot of perplexity as, as to how something as dramatic and catastrophic as that could happen. When Hurricane Katrina hit, there was a lot of perplexity in this country. How could that? Because, I mean, wow, that's really bad. We haven't had something like that. Natural disaster. And there were those who got in trouble. Preachers for saying this is a wake-up call from the Lord. Oh man, the news media was incensed about that one. But the wind and the seas obey Him. And I repeat the question, if a hurricane or a tsunami was disciplined from the Lord, would we even know it in our country? Would we even recognize it as such? But on the small scale, I love what Solomon's prayer does here. It is immediately assuming God's disciplinary involvement in all things. That if something happens, God may in fact have a hand in it. Large scale disaster and, listen to me on this, small scale illness. That is individual sickness. May be discipline from the Lord. Wait a minute. Pastor Rick, are you saying, because for example, I know one of our elders who's sitting back in the back has a kidney thing going on. Is Jim being disciplined by God? Did he sin in such a way that God is punishing him? Oh, I knew it was Jim. I knew that he was that kind of sinner. Uh-huh. I knew. Does God discipline with sickness? James chapter 5, verse 15 James said the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins they will be forgiven him. The point is and what I'm saying is we don't know necessarily where illness where sickness comes from. It could be the result of sin. I mean that that still is as possible today as it ever was gang. If there's sickness or illness in your life it may be God disciplining because of sin. It is a possibility. And it's worth praying about. It could be an attack of Satan. Having nothing to do with the Lord at all, but Satan having allowance to to go after you. That's possible too. It might be simply for testifying to the virtue of God's goodness. As in John chapter 9, the man who was blind from birth, and the Pharisees said, well, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither one. There's no sin involved at all. So God would be glorified. Huh? Yeah. See. Boom. He could see and God was glorified. And that was the purpose of that illness. So that's a possibility. And another possibility we have to address is sickness may just be sickness. (laughs) You may just have a cold. And it might not be the Lord's discipline and it might not be an attack of Satan and it might not be for the purpose of glorifying God. We are in fallen bodies. Corrupt bodies that get sick. The point is this game. In any case, we should pray about it. Whether we realize we've sinned or not, whether it seems to be an attack or not, whether it's just sickness or for the purpose of glorifying God, if anyone is sick among you, James says, pray. 
Well, why do we do that? To get healed? Well, yeah, that's part of it. But part of it is also so you can find out why there's illness. So you can seek some discernment and understanding from the Lord as to why you're in the place you are. If you don't ask the Lord, you're not going to know. If we don't pray about the hurricane and the tsunami and say, Lord, is this something we need to be paying attention to? Are you doing this? Then we will never know if it truly was the Lord trying to get our attention. So Solomon prays for all these things. In verse 32, he now prays, and I love this, he prays for evangelical determination. Evangelical determination, verse 32. Also, concerning the foreigner who is not from your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your great namesake, and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray toward this house, then hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as your people Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. I mentioned this group earlier. Nokri. Nokri. In the Hebrew means stranger or the alien. And God has always, from the earliest days of the law, had a heart for the stranger. He has always cared for the outsider and the alien. The goyim is the other word in Hebrew, the Gentile. God has always said, hey, if you want to know me, come know me. Jew or not. Come be with me. Long before, gang, the church was called to be a light in the world, God determined and ordained that Israel would be the light of the world. He said this through Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 49.6. Is it too small a thing? He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. He's talking to Israel there. Evangelism was not an original concept with the church. It was an original concept with God. And from the beginning, he sought to save all people. And here's Solomon. I love this. He's praying that the name would be heard even by the foreigner or the stranger and that they would come to know the Lord and fear Him, to fear the name. And if the Pharisees in Jesus' day had gone back and reread Solomon's prayer, they would have been offended by that. Because in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had so separated themselves from the non-Jewish world that if they brushed up against the Gentile in the market, they had to go home, wash their clothes, and wash their bodies. A Pharisee, a true Pharisee, would not even walk on the same dust that a Gentile had just walked on. They had gotten to the place where they said, no, we are of God and you are not, and so we are separating ourselves. And boy, I hope I don't see that happen with this church. No, we're not supposed to be in the world. You're not supposed to be of the world. But we're still in it. And we still have a call on our lives to touch those who are not saved with the name, the call of evangelism. Christian brothers and sisters, please hear me on this. While we are called to live holy lives because He is holy, we are not called to separation from the stranger. Jesus couldn't have been more clear, Matthew 28, 28, verse 19. Go make disciples of who? All nations. All nations. And that's what Solomon right here is praying. This should stand out like like a beacon in the Hebrew Scriptures. That Solomon is praying that this temple and that the name of God would be worshipped not just by Jewish people, but by the outsider, the no-cree, the stranger and alien as well. Verse 34. 
When your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you toward this city, which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear from, hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, I have that underlined, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they are taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity and have acted wickedly, if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been taken captive and pray toward their land which you have given to their fathers and the city which you have chosen and toward the house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven from your dwelling place their prayer and supplications and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And what he prays here is exactly what Daniel did. Back in Daniel chapter 6, which I mentioned before, when he was praying before the open window, do you know why he had to pray through that open window? Because it was a direct shot to Jerusalem and to the temple. That's why Daniel didn't go pray in a back room. That's why he didn't go find some other hidden place. you know every synagogue in the country of Israel, even today, faces Jerusalem? Wherever that synagogue may be, it is built to face to Jerusalem because of this prayer. Because Solomon said, when, when your people look to Jerusalem, when they pray to this house, hear their prayers. I think one of the reasons God allowed a house to be built for His name in the first place was to give His people vision. A place to which they could look and be reminded that God is listening and hearing. Even when they're despairing, even when they're dispersed in far off lands, God gives them a vision of kingdom, both past and coming. What's great is while Daniel was praying out his window, there was no temple there. It had been destroyed. But he was still praying to the location where the temple would again be built. Because that's where Solomon prayed that God would hear their prayers. Verse 40. Now, O my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your might, and let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your godly ones rejoice in what is good. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Your anointed. The word is Mashiach. But he's talking about himself because it also means the anointed king, Solomon is saying. Remember your loving kindness to your servant, David. So one more phrase that stands out to me in this prayer. I really like, he says, if they take thought. If your people are dispersed, if they're in another country, if they're in captivity, and they take thought. That is, if they come to their senses. It stands out to me because that's exactly what Jesus says the prodigal son does. He comes to his senses. They're in the muck and the mire and the pig stuff. Luke fifteen seventeen, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? And I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. When does that happen? When a person comes to their senses. I like to put it this way, when we come to the end of ourselves. Let me just throw out a thought on this. Sometimes it takes that for a person to recognize their sin and their need for God. It takes for a person to come to the end of themselves. And we don't like that. 
I would rather jump in and rescue a person and, 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 and try to help them fight against getting to the bottom of the barrel. I want to do something to save. Whether well, let's give some money because that maybe that'll help them out, or, or let's let's take care of this, or, or let's provide in this way. Sometimes people just need to come to the end of themselves, so they recognize the need for the Lord. You realize God allows us our falls. How often, when we're falling in sins. I mean, do you realize that God's not going, Oh, whoa, 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 <laughs> you almost sinned there, buddy. I got you. No, what He does is He waits. Boom! We're on the floor, and then we turn and say, God, and He's there. But He wants us to come to the end of ourselves so that we receive Him. And I think that's something we need to understand, even in people around us. Sometimes we need to allow others to come to the end of themselves. Now, I know we've just done chapter 6, and there's an entire chapter in front of us. It will go very fast. Trust me. Hang on. Verse 1, chapter 7. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly He is good. Truly His loving kindness is everlasting. Wait a minute. Didn't we already see that happen? Didn't the Lord already fill the temple with the Shekinah glory that we talked about that last week? I mean, doesn't that sound a little familiar to you? Back there in chapter 5, verse 13, when they praised the Lord, then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. We just have a repetition here. What's going on? Well, some scholars believe chapter 7 just to be a broader statement of chapter 5. It's it's, it's one incident. It's one and the same thing. Chapter 5 mentions it, and then chapter 7, it's a a bigger picture. And we're told that it actually happened after Solomon prayed. And I may have implied that last week, so scratch that. I was wrong if I did. I think we're talking about two separate events of the outpouring of God's glory and Spirit here. Two times, not just one. We're dealing with a before and an after Because in chapter 5, this is before when the ark came in and the Shekinah glory filled up the temple such that the priests could not endure it. That's before Solomon prays. Now Solomon prays. And after his prayer, after when he had a burnt offering ready to go, and he said he was going to just pray, he lifted up his hands in prayer, knelt down there, lifts up the prayer, and then he was going to have a burnt offering. But before any of the priests could ignite the burnt offering, fire comes down from heaven and eats it up. God's showing His favor on what was happening. He consumes it. So, God's glory filled the temple twice? Are you saying that both happened? Well, let me ask you this. Can God show His glory more than once? Can He do that? Or once he's expended his glory, he's just a little too exhausted and has to wait you know, until he pulls his glory out. And then he can give it again somewhere else. Is God not omnipotent and omnipresent? Was the Shekinah cloud of chapter 5 the full measure of God's glory such that what we see here in chapter 7 couldn't possibly be a separate event? <laughs> the question gives the answer. Obviously not. 
Kyle and Delich in their commentary wrote the following, God's essence is not so confined to the visible vehicle of His gracious presence among His people that He ceases thereby to be enthroned in heaven and to manifest Himself therefrom. So the revelation of the same God from heaven by a descending fire is not excluded or set aside by the presence of the cloud in the holy place of the temple and in the most holy. God's glory was in the temple and God's glory secondarily again descended on the temple. The glory never left the temple. We don't see here in between chapters 5 and 7 that suddenly God pulls His glory out and goes, (gasps) Here you go again. No. The glory that filled the house in the first place was still there. It never left. But now after Solomon's prayer, more glory comes down and fills even more so in this dramatic, amazing moment. God is unlimited. He can pour out glory upon glory upon glory. People have asked, you know, if Jesus is God, how can He possibly pray to God from earth to God in heaven? Because He's God. Okay? I can't do that. I can't be here and at home, you know, watching a show at the same time. And by the way, thanks so much for coming out tonight instead of staying home to watch Obama's speech. I don't know if you... <laughs> it makes me feel good about you all showing up. God is unlimited. And so what we're seeing here is a double, double dose of glory. It's a double dose of the Shekinah. It unfolds twice before us. And it reminds me that God shows His glory twice through Jesus Christ as well. The first time in His first coming. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That was the first showing of God's glory through Jesus. And the second will be just as great. Jesus said in Matthew 24.30 The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Double dose. He's coming again and He's coming in glory. Verse 4 Then the king and all the people, they offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice, <laughs> this is amazing, of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Think about the blood. You know, what's, what's stunning is to see the amount of blood that is just in the body of one person. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures like that and they're horrifying. Just the other day, Anna Marie was messing around and scratched my ear. I'm taking blood thinners right now, you know. I mean, it just it was just pouring out of my head. I could not believe a little, tiny little scratch. 120,000 sheep, 22,000 oxen. How much blood do you think filled the courts of the temple that day? Well, that's kind of disgusting, Rick. You know what? It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough blood to cover the sins of the people. No amount of the blood of all the animals in the world would be enough to cover the sin of mankind. Only the perfect blood of Jesus Christ can truly do it. But this was a massive sacrifice and offering. Thus the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their post, the Levites also, with instruments of music to the Lord, which King David had made for, uh, for giving praise to the Lord, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Whenever he gave praise by their means, while the priests on the other side blew trumpets, and all Israel was standing. I mean, this is a huge event. Glorious. 
Then Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he had offered the burnt offerings and the fats and the peace offerings, because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to contain the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fat. So they had to expand it just to get all the offerings done. Incredible. Where am I here? Verse 8. Continue on here. So Solomon had observed the feast at that time for seven days. This wasn't just a one-day event. It was a seven-day event. And all Israel with them, a very great assembly, who came from the entrance of Hamat to the brook of Egypt. On the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly for the dedication of the altar. They observed seven days and the feast seven days. Then on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their tents rejoicing and happy of heart because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Solomon and to his people Israel. So again, everyone heads home now. They are blessed by the Lord, by the goodness of God, but it's not over. I know, some of you are saying, Rick, I I wish it was, but it's not quite. A little longer with me here. Verse 11, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people and my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And now my eyes will be opened and my ears attentive to the place to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name might be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And we talked about this on Sunday so I need not go into it again. But remember the difference between interpretation and application. And if you weren't here Sunday, I encourage you to hear the teaching because we talked about this prayer is not America's prayer. The interpretation is very clear. This prayer is Israel's prayer and the promise to heal the land is a promise to heal the land of Israel when the Jewish people come and pray. It's not a promise to heal the land of America. Interpretation. Application is another thing. We can glean from this prayer. We can apply this prayer to the way we pray. In humility, in seeking the face, in turning from our wicked ways and repenting. And again, we, we talked about all that. I'm to go all back into it again. As we conclude now, the Lord gets very personal with Solomon. Listen to this. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. But Solomon, if you turn away, and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you, and go serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land which I have given you. And this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. As for this house which was exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, by the way, as we have said, standing in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, they will say, because they forsook the Lord, 
the God of their fathers who brought them from the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore he has brought all this adversity, ad, adversity on them. This is God's condition to Solomon. And gang, you know the history. Solomon's line fails. Solomon himself fails miserably. He goes to his deathbed having accepted and invited not only foreign wives, but all of their gods as well. And in fact, thanks to the sin of his great, 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 great grandson, twelve greats, Jeconiah, in the line of Solomon, God cursed that royal line forever barring any man from sitting on the throne in Israel. Jeremiah 22 reads that curse, the curse of Coniah. In fact, so bad is the curse that though his name is Jeconiah or Yeconiah, the Y-E is from Yahweh, and God, when he curses him, removes the Y-E out of his name and just calls him Coniah, because he doesn't even deserve to have any mention of God in his name any longer. Jeconiah, Coniah, as many of you know, your Bible students, he's in the line of Solomon, and that line hits a wall. And when it hits the wall, God says, no more. No one of this line is going to rule from the throne. Now that sets up a little problem. Satan must have had a party when the curse was given. All right! No one else can rule. So the Solomonic line coming all the way down to Jeconiah is over, and no Messiah can come. Yes! Solomon's lineage is the legal line of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. Solomon is listed in that genealogy. But that genealogy, you all remember this? It lands with Joseph, who was supposed Jesus' father, but was not his father by blood. It's one of the wonderful things God did. In Mary's line, Luke chapter 3, verse 31, we see David and David's son, Nathan, not Solomon. God bypasses Solomon and comes back around so that there is no curse on the line that ultimately, through Judah, reaches to Jesus Christ, God secures His promise. He's amazing. He is an amazing God. And Isaiah 9.6 tells us a child will be born to us, a son will be given us, and the government will rest on His shoulders, and His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And note this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Asked and answered. Solomon prays. God responds. And Father, we pray tonight, thanking you for your word. Thanking You, Lord, that You hear when we pray. Thanking You, Jesus, that You even stand today making intercession for us with the Father. We pray again, Lord, that You prepare our hearts for this coming Sunday. Not for some grand, glorious event. Actually, Father, for an event of humility and for a time of drawing together and seeking You with all our hearts. Ready us for that day. And especially, Lord Jesus, ready us for the day when you call us home. And the ball really gets rolling for your eternal kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. See you on Sunday.